0: Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have made promises to us that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing, neither heights, nor depth, nor things present, nor in the past, nor things to come, nor angels, nor principalities, that nothing in all creation can separate us from your love. And Lord, there are times where we feel separated from your love. And sometimes it's because of our own sin. Sometimes it has a lot to do with our circumstances not being what we want. But Lord, we we thank you that regardless of our feeling that we are not separated from your love. Lord, help us in sadness, in grief, in bitterness, if that's what we're feeling, in fear. Help us in all of these things to remember that you love us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, that we cannot outsin your grace, but that you lavish your grace and mercy on us, that you seat us in the heavenly places, that you make us your children and co-heirs with Christ. And Lord, we long for the day when the things of this earth have passed away, And we are rejoicing in heaven with you, praising you. Lord, we long for that day. And we join the church around the world in saying, come Lord Jesus, come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all lie. We all lie a lot. And truth be told, I think almost all of us say the same lie to strangers, acquaintances, and friends, and those really close to us. Uh, The same lie to all of them. And we do it multiple times a day uh, and, and multiple, even more times a week or a month. And here's the lie we say. We run into someone we know, even a little bit, maybe not at all, And they say how are you doing we say "Oh, i'm doing all right or i'm doing good and it's a lie at least some of the time it's a lie because sometimes we're not all right and we're not good but we just say oh i'm all right because it's the right answer to say and then occasionally there's a person uh and and i'm thinking of one of you in particular who likes to do this just to throw me off who i will say how are you and with a smile on her face she will say oh, my life is pretty terrible right now. Thanks for asking. How are you? And just to see if I completely miss it, and unfortunately, sometimes I do, uh, but she's messing with me, and she knows who she is. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. We say this lie, and we, we say it because it's it's become the appropriate thing to say, and we we just want to have that right answer. And I don't know if it's just instilled in us in our culture that you're just fine, you're all right, everyone's all right, uh, mama's all right daddy's all right we're all just a little weird if it's that kind of thing or if um if it's if it's beyond that where we just are ashamed of our weakness or we don't know how to say i'm really not okay and i think prayer is one of those areas where we especially don't always know how to say i'm not okay And in the Psalms, we have 150 prayers and songs, and most of them are laments. Most of them are David or one of the other psalmists saying, I'm not okay. I'm terrified for my life. It feels like the world is crashing around me. The water is up to my neck. Where are you, God? And these laments, they cry out, they portray true emotions, not just the acceptable ones of, I'm all right, we're in church, everything's great. But they're honest. And a lot of times the the laments aren't just honest, but they're a little bit of a tie-dye effect because they're honest about the feelings of the writer and they're honest about who God is. In all but I think one of the laments the psalmist says, here's what's wrong with my life, and God, you are so good. Or God, I cry out to you, and you hear me. And they speak well of God, even while lamenting their circumstances. And we get this tie-dye of human pain, combined with the truth of God's love, presence, and protection, just mixing together. And that's What makes up a lot of the laments that we have? Well, it would be dishonest and and I think lacking integrity on my part if while talking about praying through a pandemic using the Psalms, if we did not go to a lament. And so today we're going to a lament. And we're going to Psalm 42 and 43. This is not one of David's psalms. It's one of the sons of Korah. And the psalmist is a temple worshiper who's in exile. They want to be in the temple of God. They want to be worshiping God. They want to be worshiping God with other people. And they're not permitted to. And it's painful. And this psalmist gives us deep and real emotions while, in essence, preaching the gospel to himself over and over and over again. Three times he preaches the same gospel message to himself. And these three times make up a refrain in the psalm. And as he says over and over again, I will Hope in the Lord. Hope in God. I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. And these refrains make up the structure of the psalm where he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God. And all three sections follow this, I'm cast down, I have turmoil, and I will have hope. Because the psalmist, as even though he expresses thoughts and feelings of it, he knows he's not truly alone. He is lamenting in the presence of eternal hope. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean to lament in the presence of eternal hope? In the In the case of the the psalmist here and what the example we have in psalm 42 and 43 is that lamenting in the presence of eternal hope means mixing longing with hope read with me psalm 42 1 through 5 as a deer pants for flowing streams so pants my soul for you O god my soul thirsts for god For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival. Why? Are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We have this longing and this hope. And he starts out, and this is the, he starts out with this phrase that's become very Popular, it was really popular in the 90s thanks to a song that that should have been in a minor key. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. He's talking about the agony of drought. He puts himself, I'm a deer in the desert. I'm completely exhausted from thirst. If I don't get water, I am like a deer who if I don't find water, I'm going to die. But I'm not a deer. I'm a person and my water is God himself. I'm in the desert. God did not set me up as a camel in the desert, but as a deer in the desert. I'm out of place and I'm not equipped for this. I'm not ready for this trial. God, I wasn't ready to go into exile. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When will I ever be back at the temple? And this imagery of a deer, he's saying, I I wasn't cut out for this. I'm not able to endure this. And maybe you're thinking that now. Maybe as we're in like week 73 of this, is that how long it's been? No? No? Okay. Um, but as, as this feels like it's going on forever, maybe you're thinking, boy, I, I just, I'm not able to endure this. I wasn't cut out for this. I have some news for you. You weren't cut out to handle the good days you have. You're not able to handle your best day. On your own. You need God. We need God. Minnesota, several years ago, elected as their governor, Jesse the Body Ventura of professional wrestling folklore. And Jesse the Body Ventura in the early 2000s came under a lot of heat for saying, Christians are weak people who use religion as a crutch. And I remember hearing a lot of people saying, "No, oh, we're not weak. We're not weak." And then a professor of mine in college said, "He's absolutely right. I'm incredibly weak, and I need more than a crutch. I need Jesus. I need Him to absolutely carry me." We are so fragile. We're not cut out for this. We need God. And this psalmist needs God, and he's separated from coming to God as he's used to. And I don't know that we can fully relate to this, seeing that we don't need a centralized temple to go to to worship, that we can worship in our homes, that we can worship on a hiking trail, that we can worship while we're in a coffee shop, once we can go back in a coffee shop. We can worship anywhere. And so we we can't fully relate to this, but he feels cut off from God. And maybe you can relate to that. And then he goes on to his turmoil. My tears have been my food day and night. This is a deep, persisting grief that's not letting up. It is going day and night. The, at the lightest moments, at the darkest moments, these tears are there. It's, I, I'm grieved beyond being able to eat. My tears are all that I have. And then his tears take on the form of a taunter while they say to me, Where is your God? This, where is your God? This is an unfortunate refrain, a lamenting refrain that's going to be repeated again later. But the psalmist is honest enough to say, my grief is so severe, I, I start to question things that should be pretty basic. So my tears say, where is your God? And these things I remember as I pour out my soul, as I'm I'm crying, as I'm weeping and lament for what I've lost day and night, these things I remember, how I would go with the throng, how I would lead them in procession to the house of God. This is where we get, he's a temple worshiper. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. So while he's grieving, he's remembering in my past, I've had these great exuberant moments of worship and when my grief is so severe, I remember the joy of worshiping God with a throng of people, with a multitude of people in song and dance, a procession to the temple. He's remembering the past. He's using the rear view mirror of God's faithfulness. Looking at what's behind him, seeing how God has moved, seeing the joy God has given him, seeing how God has been honored in his life, seeing all that God has done for him in the rear view mirror. And he's looking ahead to the hope that he still has. And here we get to the hope. This this is the refrain. He starts to, this is an important thing for us to do. He starts to doubt his doubts. This is something Tim Keller writes about and challenges us. That when we have doubts, to say, is that doubt worthy? Is that doubt bigger than God? And to be skeptical of our doubts, not just skeptical of God. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Look at all the worship that I've been able to participate in. Think back on all that time when I felt God's love so real. It was like I felt arms around me. And I look back on that and he starts counseling his own soul. Why are you cast down? Why are you at turmoil? Hope in God. Yes, tears are my food, but God is more sure. Hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This struggle happens in all of us. And we can be real with that. But there are times, and this is is so much different than just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is reminding your soul of the eternal God that His promises are true. Reminding your soul of what God has done for you in the past and looking forward to what God is still to do in the future. Remember, he who began a good work in you will, will be faithful to carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's still working in you. And the psalmist, while looking at his present circumstances where he is in exile, in this deep, persistent grief that's not letting up, He keeps eternity in mind. He lives with eternity in mind. Eternity helps us. To say to ourselves, I will enter eternal joy where there will be, and this is the words of Revelation, no more sickness. One day, we will be with God and there will be no more sickness. No more new virus that can come from who knows where and do this to us and disrupt our lives this much. No more sickness. And He sets his heart and mind on God, my salvation and my God. And this same confession is used to wrap up each section of the lament. And while the whole confession is valuable, each time I want to pull a little different part Because I think there's an emphasis that the refrain has for the lament that happens right before. And here he says, I shall again praise him. As he's looking back and saying, I used to lead the throng of people, the multitudes of people to the temple of God with singing, with procession, with shouts of joy, with dancing. I used to lead them in all those ways. And you know what? I'm going to praise God again one day. My worship to God will resume. It's not done. This trial will be over. My tears will be gone. My food will be better than tears one day. And I will again praise my God. So, the lamenting in the presence of eternal hope means mixing longing with hope. And now it also means mixing lostness with guiding love. Starting verse six, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me Why, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here, the cast down is is pretty obvious. He says, My soul is cast down within me. He misses home. He is homesick for the promised land of God. He misses the place of God's temple. For the Israelites, the land was part of their identity. It was part of their blessing. When people come from a blessed land, they often identify their location with being part of their identity because God's richness is so closely tied with where they are from. For the psalmist, these specific locations likely had meaning. I mean, he could have picked anywhere. He doesn't even mention Jerusalem. He talks about Hermon. Hermon was in the Zion Mountains. It's, it's where the, the source of the River Jordan starts. It, it, it's a you know, We see this in other Psalms. In, in Psalm 133, due, as dew on the Mount of Hermon. That's that's the that that most refreshing dew from the most refreshing place is what it's like when brothers dwell in unity. And so he points to the source up at the top of the the headwaters of the river Jordan and then he says from Mount Midzar and you think well I haven't heard of that and there's probably a reason for that if you haven't heard of that outside of this psalm is that uh, call it a mountain is is perhaps a bit ironic it's really more of a glorified hill in the in the shadow of the greatness of Mount Hermon. So he's saying, I wanna be at the source of life in the shadow of greatness. That's where I wanna be. My soul is cast down because I'm not there. And then the imagery for this guy who is wanting to be at the headwaters, who's a deer, panting for water the imagery takes a sharp turn he started out with not enough water and now he has entirely too much water deep calls to deep the roar of your waterfalls all your breakers and your waves have gone over me i don't know if you've ever swam in the ocean if you've ever gotten more than like knee deep in the ocean but you get out there among the waves and if you're not looking they can just knock you over and if they get stacked on top of each other, it's hard to get up and find your breath. It's hard to know which way is up. and the, the imagery he has here is your breakers and your waves. they've just gone over me. They've rolled me in the surf. I don't know which way is up. I'm completely disoriented, and there's this feeling as you as you're in a moment like that, and the water's pushing and pulling you and turning you around, that, that a panic of of drowning can set in quickly. And he he says god i am just overwhelmed by the relentlessness of what's going on. And without trying to go too deep into the metaphor, i think he's just confessing his exhaustion, his exhaustion and how disoriented he is. But he's not facing it alone. These these waves are rolling over me. By day, the Lord commanded His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me—a prayer to the God of my life. Even as this is happening, God's love and His song are with me, whether it's day or whether it's night. And this is this, this day and night. This is this is so much more than just time. I think it. I think it's talking about time that it's with me all day, all night. But there's also this. This imagery in the Hebrew of of day and night representing order and chaos or, or safety and danger. That Even in exile, there may be moments of tranquility and there, God's love is with me. When I was back at the temple, God's love was with me. And now that I'm in exile, now that things are in complete chaos, that I don't know what tomorrow's gonna be, that I don't even know what the rest of today's gonna be, God's steadfast love is with me. And so he answers his cast down and then he goes to his turmoil. I, I know God's love and song is with me. I say to my God, this prayer of my life, my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? The psalmist has just said, the Lord has commanded his steadfast love to be with me. His song is with me at the night. And and here he says, why have you forgotten me? The psalmist is praying. And I wonder, I wonder if in his heart he's saying, I've prayed before and it's worked. Why isn't it working now? Why isn't it working this time? And sometimes we go through seasons where our soul is parched and our prayers feel ineffective. And the key word here is feel. It's not that they are ineffective, they feel ineffective. And our feelings are strong, but they are not always reality and they are not always in sync with reality. And I deeply appreciate the psalmist's honesty here and he's, so many times throughout the Psalms, the various psalmists refer to God as a rock and a refuge. And here he's saying, I cry out to you, my rock, my place of security, my stronghold, the thing that never changes. Why have you forgotten me? But God hadn't forgotten him. He felt forgotten, but God hadn't forgotten him. In Isaiah 49, 15 to 16, the prophet says, look, if a, a, a nursing, will a nursing mother ever forget her child? Even if she could, God will never forget you. God has a stronger memory of you, his child through Christ's blood, the child he's adopted through the work of Christ, than a mother does of her biological child. And God says, "I've." I've he's telling this Israel, I've engraven you on my hand. Your name is on my hand. It is always before me. God has not forgotten you. There are times in our lives where this morning, where our morning brings a particular brand of turmoil rushing to the surface. He's crying out to God. He's repeating his theology to himself. But in this season, the theology doesn't seem to match what he's feeling. And there's this battle within him between his torment and his mourning that feels like death in his bones. And his theology that says, God is good, he is my rock, he is my salvation, and there's this battle waging within him, and this is turmoil, and he doesn't feel right. And his grief has taken on the form of an adversary. And later in Psalm 43, we see that it feels like they're actual adversaries, and they may be here too, and they're tormenting all the day long. Where is your God? And the adversaries tell him that for some reason the steadfast love of God doesn't apply to him anymore. So the psalmist in this battle between the truth of God and the experience of now once again counsels him with that refrain. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. And here we focus on my salvation. God is our salvation. Where is God? Where is your God? He's saving you. Where is Christ? He's sitting on the throne after raising victoriously from dying on the cross for your sins. He's at the right hand of God and he's praying for you. That's where your God is. He's listening to you. The Son of God is praying for you. The Holy Spirit of God is in you, praying on your behalf and groans that are too, seri- too deep for words. And the truth of the matter is, we do have an adversary who and he not only accuses us, but he accuses us before God. Romans 12 talks about Satan, the dragon, the great great dragon, standing before God, accusing the saints day and night. And and then in Revelation, it says, but we shall overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We shall overcome by the salvation God has given us. I was at a conference a few years ago, and D.A. Carson was talking about this idea. And he went back to the Passover, the blood of the Lamb, where that originated. And he said, imagine that night of the Passover. You You have Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones. And Mr. Smith comes up to Mr. Jones and says, well, are you are you going to be doing this tonight? Are you you so excited? This is going to be great. God's deliverance is coming. This plague is coming. We're going to be set free. And Mr. Jones says, well, I'm just so nervous. This has been really scary lately. The water turned to blood. Everything broke out in boils. There were all the insects and the frogs and the hail and the darkness. And I just don't, I'm just so terrified. And now now there's going to be a, a, a death coming through, killing the firstborn of every son. And Mr. Smith goes, well, well, you, you're going to put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, and you're going to eat the feast of the lamb in your home, right? Well, yeah, Mr. Jones says, I'm, I'm going to do that, but I'm just so nervous. I mean, what if, it, what if it doesn't work? And Mr. Smith is so sure, and he says, well, this is going to work. Everything else has come true. This is going to work. God's really going to bring the, the judgment to Pharaoh and his household, and we're going to be set free. This is a day to celebrate. And Mr. Jones says, this is a day to be afraid of. I hope it works. I just don't know if it will work. And D.A. Carson broke down this scenario and then he asked this. Mr. Jones, who was very nervous and apprehensive, followed the Passover regulations, put the blood over his doorstep. Mr. Smith was very confident in the instructions and did the same thing. Which one was delivered from the spirit of death? Both were. Because it wasn't the sureness of the faith that saved them. It was the blood of the Lamb. And for you, it is not the unwavering, I'm going to move mountains faith that saves you. It is the blood of the Lamb that saves you. It is the blood of the Lamb that washes your sin. God is His salvation. He's not His own salvation. God is His salvation. Our salvation, your salvation, my salvation, if you're not saved, the salvation that's available for you is based on God and who He is, not on you. You're the object of salvation, not the worker of salvation. And we need to keep that in mind. I'm the object. I'm the one God saves. I'm not the worker of my own salvation. And from lostness to With guiding love, we move to a tie-dye effect of danger and certain help. And here we have Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people for the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God with exceeding joy and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. As a temple worshiper, taken from the temple, the psalmist, felt the full weight of not being with God in God's place. He was in exile. He was uncomfortable. And as believers, I think we can learn from this, especially here in the. US where for much of Christian for much of our nation's history, Christianity or at least some version of Christianity has been popular and is now becoming much less popular. And Peter, in his epistle, refers to the believers as elect exiles. And we need to view ourselves that way. God, I'm around people that don't love you. And take seriously Jesus' words. If they, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. God, will you vindicate me? There's a book I want us to read together as a church. I invite you to read it with me. It's called Evangelism as Exiles. Um... I invite you to read this with me. It's, um, it's written by a guy named Elliot Clark. Uh, it's based on the, the writings in 1 Peter. Uh, and, and it talks, how do we share the gospel in a world where we're increasingly less popular, where we need vindication from God because it's never going to come from others. And he's cast down. He needs to be vindicated. And he's at turmoil here he goes. He was at God is my rock. Now God is my refuge. Why have you for, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? God, this isn't right. And here and, and the enemies they go on, where's your God? Or no, that's not in here. That's before. Sorry. But the oppression of his enemy, those pestering questions. God has allowed him to experience this adversity. And when we're in the midst of a trial, it's really hard to see that God is allowing this and God is using this to shape me for his purposes. But let's remember that. This turmoil is much the same. God, you're my refuge, but my access to the refuge feels cut off. And we don't know why he felt rejected, but we know that God had not truly rejected him. Because if God had truly rejected him, then the best parts of this psalm, these psalms, are, are not applicable. Remember God, remember Jesus' words. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we get to the hope, and here his hope is that God is his God. And he, he starts out with the hope, and he says, Lord, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. And this is the most hopeful part of all of them. This, and the, the psalm, while it's a lament, it leads towards hope. God, sent, he uses the attributes of God to directly combat the darkness and deception God, send your light and your truth. Send your light to guide me. Make this way less confusing. Confusing. Illuminate the trail before me. Use your, Lord, would your light protect me? You think of like a, a if you're at night and there's two parking lots and one's completely dark and one's well lit, you're gonna walk in the well lit parking lot because the light protects you. It, and the light not only protects you, but it exposes things. Think of being a kid and learning that things look really scary in the dark, and when you turn on the light, it's just a pile of dirty laundry. That the shadow was scary, but the light exposes it as harmless. God, you are light. Jesus, you are the light of the world. Shine that and bring your truth. The truth that we don't need to stand under accusation if we have been made free in Christ that there's no condemnation for those who are free in Christ. And sometimes being exposed by the light and the truth of God means that we are put on a path that is full of rejoicing, and sometimes it means that we see our own sin. And we see, I felt rejected from God, not because God rejected me, but because my sin that I'm not dealing with and I'm not repenting of stands between me and God. And so when God's light and truth reveals those things in us, we need to confess our sin, and He will forgive us, and He will cleanse us of unrighteousness. We have so much to learn from the psalmist here, and there's a few things that that I want to just pull out for us. First of all, preach the gospel to yourself regularly remind yourself who God is and what he's done for you through Jesus Christ. Regularly, this is the second thing, regularly look in the rearview mirror for God's faithfulness. Where has God been in my life before? What are those high moments of praise that I've had in my life? What are those moments that I have, that I have felt closest to God? Not to say, oh, I wish I had that back. But to say, wasn't that wonderful when I felt that closeness to my Creator? Wasn't that wonderful that I had that? Wasn't that so beautiful, so great? And celebrate those while looking forward to what God's promises for you still are. That He's still working on you. That you'll be united with Him in heaven that all your sins can be forgiven, that nothing between now and heaven will separate you from the love of God. And deal with anything that stands between you and God. And that may involve also dealing with something that stands between you and another person. If there are things that you need to repent of to another person, you need to do that. And that's part of walking with God is loving each other well and being unified with each other and not letting our sin get in the way. And finally, you've probably heard this already today, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of God's great love for you, of God's forgiveness, that He is your rock and He is your refuge, and He is all these things in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You never leave us nor forsake us, that all of Your promises are yes in Jesus. We put our hope in you, our salvation, and our God. We praise your name. Amen.